You know that song was true when you woke up this morning. And it'll be true when you go to lunch. And when you lay down tonight, and if the Lord willing you wake up in the morning, it'll still be true. It'll still be, as Eddie Clyde likes to tell me all the time, the Lord will still be on His throne. And uh, I don't know about you, but there are times I just need to remember that. <laughs> Let's pray together. And Lord, remind us above all of who you are. The, the king on his throne. Lord, as we run around in our lives down here, we so often forget and we so often ignore the truth. So Lord, remind us this morning of you being high and exalted and yet stooping low to come to us. Thank you for that gospel message. Lord, as we study your word, as we hear a sermon, as, as we spend the next few moments, Lord, help us to, to truly hone in on the truth that you want to say this morning. Make it abundantly clear. Overwhelm us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. The other day I, I turned on the television and was, was flipping through the guide on DirecTV. You know how that goes, and you just keep going and going and going, and you get back to the bottom and you go back up again because there was nothing on. And, and I saw that Rocky was on, the movie, the, the original Rocky, which was then followed by Rocky II. And I thought, I've found what I'm doing for the next couple hours plus. And so I don't know if you ever saw those movies, but man, the Italian stallion, Rocky Balboa, Philadelphia's own. And he rises from being a club fighter to the heavyweight champion of the world in fights that in today's world they would call after 30 seconds. Those guys just beat each other senseless for 15 rounds. And you always knew that when Rocky was about to strike at first, though he's backed into the corner. And at first, it's Apollo Creed, the world champ, and, and he gets Rocky, and he's just hammering on Rocky over there in the corner, and Mick's yelling at Rocky, get out of there, get out of there, Rocky, and, and, and Rocky's just ignoring him, and he's got his hands up, and Apollo's just wailing on him, and all of a sudden, here it comes. Rocky just throws that haymaker. And then you get to the next movie and the same thing happens. You get to Rocky 3 and he's fighting Mr. T. <laughs> That's big time stuff. Now he's fighting Mr. T. You know, the mohawk. I mean, the whole deal. Here he comes, all the jewelry, and he's talking all kinds of trash. And he, and he finally gets to where he, he gets into the corner and here he comes. And then the greatest Rocky movie of all, Rocky 4, in the height of the Cold War, you know. You watched it, and you were ready to go to battle against every communist that you could find, all right? The Soviet Union was the devil, and you were going to go find him and whoop him. Because in Rocky IV, Ivan Drago gets Rocky over in a corner. And Mick's not there anymore to tell him to get out of the corner. Mick died in Rocky III, just a spoiler alert, just so you know. <laughs> and, 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 and then Apollo died in Rocky IV. I mean, it's just tragic. <clears throat> And so he's got all of Apollo's old trainers, and, and Paulie's there, you know, his brother-in-law. And I mean, you know, Paulie, he's just hanging out. And, and it rocks over in a corner again, and Yvonne Drago's just whooping on him. And all of a sudden, you can just see it. Rocky comes out swinging. And here he comes, that left-handed haymaker. Wham! And he just, he finally knocks out Yvonne Drago, and he ends the Cold War in Rocky IV. <laughs> 
Olympics. So, spoiler alert, it was not Reagan and Gorbachev that ended the Cold War. It was Rocky. He did it. Because if I can change and you can change, then everybody can change, he said at the end. And all the Russians were cheering him and all that. What I find amazing, though, is what Rocky did when he was in the corner. Because I don't know much about boxing, but it seems to me that's not a very good place to be. You can't really escape because you got ropes on this side, ropes on this side, and a big guy beating you up in the front of you. I just There's no way to go. You can't scoot under him, can't get around him. He just keeps whooping on you. What do you do when you're backed into a corner? The truth is that, as humorous as that may be, there are times in life, maybe one for you right now, and you're just backed into that corner and life is just wailing on you. And, and here you are, you're trying to cover up, and so you cover your face and they start hitting you in the gut. You cover up here and they start hitting you in the face. You've got people, you've got circumstances, you've got things that have got you backed into the corner. What will you do? Now, I'm not going to try to teach you to do exactly what Rocky did this morning. But I do believe there's a way you can fight even when you're backed into the corner. And I hope that I can help you see this morning from a psalm that I think is very, very powerful. The way to fight when you are scared to death, backed into a corner, and you don't feel as if there's any way out, and ultimately what you feel is that not only is life against you, and people are against you, but God is against you. And you're there all alone. The series that we're continuing this morning is called Living As If. And it's hard to live as if when reality tells you something else. When all you see are ropes on the right and ropes on the left, and you've got the pad behind you and somebody in front of you, or life. It's hard to live as if God is there sometimes when it feels like He's not. We saw that a couple weeks ago. It's hard to live as if God is God when it feels like everything else has so much power. This morning we'll look at what it's like to live as if God is for you, even when you're backed into a corner and you feel all alone and like He's not. Next week, we'll look at what it's like to live as if God is better than anything else this world has to offer. And we'll finish up the series with looking at what it's like to live as if God truly is aware of what you're going through. When sometimes it seems like you forget. I think we need to hear it often. And so that's why I'm going to come back to this. Keep preaching as if God is there, as if God is God, as if God is for you, as if God is better, as if God is aware. I want to remind us of those things because I I truly believe if you're anything like me, you go through life and sometimes you're just coasting and you forget those truths. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 56. Psalm 56 this morning. The words are, if you've got a bulletin, and just so you, you know, words there will be on your, your handout. Uh, there's a code there on the back. We put that on there as I remind you from time to time. If you've got a smartphone or a tablet and you like to follow along, maybe take your own online notes. That will take you to a link where you can do that. And if you do type in your own notes, just as a side note, if you type in your own notes there at that uh, Bible.com, the, the, the uh, Bible app, uh, you can email that to yourself if you'd like to hang on to that or whatever. So take a look. The, the version that's on the, the sheet is what we'll be following along with. The title of this psalm uh, is, is not listed there on the sheet, but basically what it tells us, a little bit of a description that history has kind of carried down to us, and that is that David, King David, 
uh, who, well, the eventual King David, wrote this psalm before he was king, and while he was, uh, was hiding out, if you will, among the enemy. There was a time in 1 Samuel chapter 20, chapter 21 rather, that David was being chased by the current king of Israel, King Saul. Some of you may know this from old Sunday school stories. Uh, king Saul was the, the first king of Israel, and, and he was a knucklehead. That's, he was just knucklehead. He didn't do what God wanted him to do. He sinned against God. He, he, he did all kinds of things that, that weren't right. And God said, you know what? You're not going to be my king anymore. And he sent Samuel, the prophet, to tell him. What a great job that was. Uh, king, you're not going to be the king anymore. God said so. But it's not time for you to stop ruling yet. There's some other young guys who got to grow up, and then he'll take over. So you've got a few more years to go without God's blessing, but still trying to do your job. Good luck. And so that's the conversation that, that Samuel and Saul had. Well, in between that conversation and where David finds himself in Psalm 56 was, was kind of an odd time for David. He grows up. He's an extremely talented young man in a variety of areas. And he winds up serving in the king's court as a guy that tries to calm him down. Apparently Saul had some serious anger issues. And he would just kind of lose it on people from time to time. Just go crazy. And David would play the harp and it would calm him down. And then occasionally Saul would throw things at him. Like a spear. And try to pin him against the wall. Not, it's in the Bible, I'm not lying. They make this stuff up. This is exactly what happened. And then David would, would figure out, you know what, I'm not sure this guy really likes me that much, and maybe I should try to avoid him a little bit. Hmm. Saul's son Jonathan and David were really good friends. And Jonathan knew how his dad was, and so he was trying to help David because he also knew that David had been anointed to be the next king. And so in between all this time, David from time to time has to run away. Saul's out to get him. He has to go and hide. And in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he is in a city called Gath, which is where Goliath was from. He had already killed Goliath a few chapters before, but now he runs away to where the Philistines live, the arch enemy of the Israelites, and he's trying to hide out there to escape Saul. So he goes maybe where he thinks, well, you know what? They don't like Saul. I'm the next guy. Maybe they'll help me out. It turns out it's not exactly the way things go for him. And he wrote Psalm 56 as he's backed into this corner, chased around, far from everything that's comfortable to him, no idea what's going to happen next, somebody out to get him. And Psalm 56 is a very honest, direct, and sincere prayer to God. I just want you to know as a reminder before we get into reading this psalm that for some who believe that you can't be honest or you can't be direct, or you can't be sincere in your talks with God, just read the Psalms. There are times when you think, how could you say that to God? As you read the Psalms. You seriously just said that to God? You told God exactly what He should be doing? What He should, what he should know? You ask God, God, are you aware of all this? You sure you know what's going on? Those are the honest, direct, and sincere words of many of the Psalms. Psalm 56 in verse 1 puts it this way. Be gracious to me, God, for man tramples me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. David there writing in Psalm 56, obvious, you see what's going on. Not only was the king of Israel after him, but he finds himself in Gath, not welcome there either. He says, people are all around me all day long. And he asked God, he said, God, I just want you to be gracious. That's a word that just means, would you be favorably inclined to me? Stop making life so hard. 
Would, would you relent just a little bit, God? Would you show some favor? Would you be compassionate? Would you have some pity on me? Would you pay attention to what's going on? Be gracious, he says. Because he doesn't feel any grace from God. You ever felt that way? Life's just hard. And it's one thing after another, after another, after another, after another, and it never seems to end. He says, men trample me. They crush me. They pulverize me. They're stomping on me, God. Don't you get it? The word trample there actually can be translated to come out something, uh, in some way to describe like a hound dog pursuing its, its catch. They're, they're just constantly nipping at my heels, is what he tells God. He says, they fight against me, they oppress me, they're squeezing me in, Lord, they're backing me into a corner. That word oppress has the idea that you've shut the door on someone and you're pushing them back now with the door itself further back into the room. David says, God, I need a break here. That's where he is. Verse 2. My adversaries trample me all day, for many arrogantly fight against me. Just a reiteration of verse 1. God, you're aware of this, right? I mean, you know what's going on. These folks are giving me a hard time. God, the whole world seems to be conspiring against me. And you may not have ever been chased by the king of Israel. You may not have ever fled to the, to the land of your arch enemy, but you know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to have life just fight against you. Circumstances, people that you just can't seem to get past. You know what it's like to be backed into a corner. To feel like people are just out to get you. Everybody's making it hard on you. For David, it was because the king, Saul, wanted what David had, which was the blessing of God. The king Saul was scared that David was better than him. The people praised him. David was a threat to the king. David was following the Lord and Saul was not. Now let me just tell you this. Jesus promised that if you want to follow him, you're going to have trouble. People aren't going to like it. And we've, we've, we've finally awakened, I believe, as Christians in America to understand people don't like it when we follow the Lord. And I mean truly follow the Lord, not just nominal, not just doing church, not just showing up occasionally just to check off a box. But when you truly give your life to the Lord, people don't like it. And that's David. For him, I'm sure there was lots of doubt constant attack, certainly lots of discouragement. It's relentless, and he seems to be all alone. All day long, he says, they just pursue me. And so he calls out to God, sort of in this form of a complaint. This psalm is what's called a lament psalm, where he's just like, God, it's awful. I got nothing. What are you doing? And then he inserts what will be the chorus of this psalm. Now, you understand, the psalms are written in poetic form, meant to be sung during worship. Many of the songs that, uh, especially I've noticed, have been written recently. Some of the praise courses have come directly from psalms. They were meant to be put into that form. And so he inserts what will be the chorus, the refrain, what he'll come back to in verses 3 and 4. Look at that. When I am afraid, when I'm in the corner, when I'm backed up, when I don't know where to go, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Talking, of course, to God. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, when I am afraid. You realize that's the normal response to verses 1 and 2? You, you, we sometimes think, I guess, as Christians, maybe you've thought this, I know I have, that, well, if I have real human emotion, I must not be a very good Christian. 
You know, if I ever get scared, if I ever get upset, if I ever get anxious, if I ever get worried, if I ever don't know what's going on, if I ever get angry, if I ever get emotional, well, I must not be a very good Christian. Because good Christians certainly never get scared. They always just let go and let God. Really? Always? I know that some of you are like that. I, I, I know it. Some of you are just the most perfect Christian the world has ever seen. And unfortunately, none of those folks are here, right? We were talking, somebody will listen to this recording, and they'll hear it. Isn't it true, though? We think, well, you know, when I am afraid, oh, I'm never afraid of anything in life. I've got God on my side, and I'm good to go. When I am afraid is the normal response to people oppressing and fighting and trampling and coming after you all the time. He says, when I'm shuddering, when I'm trembling, when I am afraid, he says, I will trust I'll put my trust in. I'll consciously be aware of this. I'll be secure. I'll be full of confidence. That is an oxymoron. Those two things don't seem to go together. When I am afraid, I will have confidence. He says, I trust God. In God I trust, and I will not fear. He says, essentially, when I'm scared, I won't be scared. That doesn't make any sense. When I'm afraid, he says, I will not fear. In spite of his fear, he's putting his trust in God. And that will, as we'll see, lead him eventually to great confidence in the Lord. He comes back in verse 5 to talk about what can man do to me. What what an incredible statement he makes in verse 4. What can man do to me? It's as if there he is... After the training montage in Rocky Four, having run through Siberia, and he gets to the top of the mountain, and he's screaming and yelling, and he's ready to go. What can Drago do to me, he says. Verse 5 describes it. They twist my words all day long. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps while they wait to take my life. The enemies that he has, the people that are out to get him, misrepresent him. You ever had somebody do that to you? You ever had somebody twist what you said? Or, or say, you know, hey, I heard about this about them or that about them, or whatever it may be, or life circumstances simply twist who you really are? Those are real people for him. They twist his words. They injure his cause, he says. They find fault with him. They hurt him. Their thoughts, their plans, their purposes are always against him. He's got nobody in his corner And all they want is for his distress and his misery and for him to experience that anxiety. And they treat him with such hostility. He says they stir up strife and then they lurk. That's such a great description. They're hiding out waiting for him to pass by and they're going to get him. They're just waiting for the perfect opportunity. It's as if maybe you've felt, well, at some point that other shoe is going to drop and I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's coming. And something else is going to go wrong. My dad used to always say, if it ain't one thing, it's three others. You ever felt that way? Oh, it's just, just wait. Something around the corner is about to happen. It's just like David is describing. They lurk. Life is just waiting, he says, to take my life. That's what they're waiting for. Those verses include, what can man do to me? What can people do? He just describes it in verses 5 and 6. 
Verses 7, 8, and 9 say it this way. Will they escape? Here's where he turns. He turns back to God. Look, here's what they're doing. And then he says, God, will they escape in spite of such sin? God, bring down the nations in wrath. You yourself have recorded my wonderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your records? Then my enemies will retreat on the day when I call. He says, God, are they going to get away with this? Is, Is this really the way life's going to go? I mean, God, all I'm doing is trying to do the best I can to live for you. You anointed me the king. All I've done is serve you and serve the king. I had chances to kill this guy, and I avoided it every time. All I've done has been faithful one day after the next, after the next, after the next. God, he's the one. These folks are the one. This circumstance is the one that you ought to be upset with, and yet, God, it feels like you're not for me. What have I done? He said, God, are they they really, really going to get away with it? Their sin is going to go unpunished. You're telling me that? Now, I know recently, with some of the developments in our country and different things that have happened and tragedies and so on, you've wondered some of that stuff. God, seriously, are you not going to do anything about this? I mean, you're just going to let this happen. I mean, these things are going to go unpunished, and these folks are going to do what they want to do, and you're not going to do a thing about it. Now, you've thought that. Maybe you haven't been bold enough to pray it, but I guarantee you that many of us have thought that. Thank God for somebody who was bold enough thousands of years ago to put it in writing to know that we can say the same thing. He says, God, I want you to bring down the nations. That's called an imprecation. It's an imprecatory psalm. That word means he's calling down curses on people. You ever read one of those psalms? God, kill all these people. It's like, can I pray that? Man, that's awesome. Can I pray that prayer? You know, you've thought that. You've read that and thought, oh, okay, all right, let me write down a few names next to this verse. I'm going to insert them. God, okay, here's the folks I need you to take care of for me, all right? You've thought those things. Come on, we're in church. You've got to be honest, don't you? He starts to call down curses. He said, God, I want you to bring down the nations. The nations, they represent all the ungodly people of the world. He said, Lord, you know what I've been through. He says in verse 8, you, you yourself have recorded. You've, you've memorized. You're fully aware. You are well-versed in my wonderings. That word there means the changeable circumstances of my life. You're aware of what's gone on. You know what's happened. God, you've seen my tears. You're well aware. Now it's time for you to do something. You can hear the complaint and the exhaustion in his voice. God, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm backed into a corner. Not only is everybody else against me, but so are you because you won't do anything. God, I, I, I wouldn't let this happen if I were you. But you can also hear the trust in his voice when he says, you've recorded my wonderings. You, you know about my tears. He, he's kind of balanced between, God, I'm not real happy with you right now, but I know that you know what's going on, and so I trust you in the midst of it. In verses 9 through 11, he says, this I know, the second part of verse 9, God is for me. In God whose word I praise, here's the chorus again, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, this I know. That word there is not just, yeah, I've kind of got it in my mind, I'm aware of that truth. I've heard that before. This is, I have experienced it. In fact, it's the same word that can be used elsewhere in the Bible for the relations between a husband and wife. I have intimate knowledge that God is for me. I am fully aware. I have experienced it. I've lived it. And I know what it feels like. He says, 
I know this. I know by experience, this isn't just wishful thinking. And it's because of that that he can say, what can man do to me? And he finishes out the psalm with this, almost as if all of the stuff that he had prayed for has already happened, and he's writing sort of as if this is at the tail end of it. He says, I'm obligated by vows to you, God. I will make my thank offerings to you, for you delivered me from death, even my feet from stumbling, to walk before God in the light of life. You kind of get the idea that, you know what, this is after the fact. And he's looking back on it, he says, God, this was my prayer, and here's what you did. He brought me out of the dark corner when I had nowhere to go, and he brought me into the light. Now, I want you to look really quickly at the structure again of this psalm. He goes from being afraid in verse 3. He says, when I'm afraid, then to not being afraid in verse 4, then to wondering if God is going to do anything about all this, then being confident that it's all in God's hands and wrapping it all up with saying, God, I'm going to thank you because of what you've done. He's able to trust and have in the, in the face of real fear, and that fear recedes, and it's no longer dominating his life by the end of the psalm. And the question is, what made the difference? Because in 13 short verses, this guy goes from the end of his rope, having no clue what to do, to being confident, standing, shaking his fist at his fear, and saying, you've got nothing on me. How was he able to fight his fear that way? How did it go away? As the story goes in 1 Samuel chapter 21... David was able to escape Gath by acting like a crazy person. I mean, he just acted like he had lost his mind completely. I'm not exactly sure all that that would have involved, but he absolutely just, he acted like he was crazy. And the king comes to all of his advisors and says, don't I have enough crazy people around here? Get rid of this guy. And that's such a great statement in the Bible. You ought to read that sometimes. 1 Samuel 21, I believe it's 10 through 15. The king says, I've got enough crazy people. That's a whole different sermon, isn't it? I've got enough crazy people in my life. Get rid of this one. But David is able to escape. But what he recognizes is it wasn't his own cleverness. It wasn't, oh, hey, look at this great idea. I'll just act like I'm crazy. It was God's deliverance through this incredible plan, and God got him out of all that. And that's what he says, you delivered me, Lord, in verse 13, from death. The people in the circumstances, as we see in 56, on 56, had made his life completely miserable. They'd twisted his words, they'd plotted against him, they'd lurked behind every bush, waiting eagerly, it says, to pounce on him, destroy him. He had every reason to be afraid, to be scared to death, and yet, by the end of the psalm, he's trusting in God and claiming, what on earth can anyone else do to me? According to the the psalmist in in our own experience, I think we recognize that he's not just talking trash here. He's not just saying, I, you guys can't do anything to me. Because the truth be told, we know what people can do to us. They can ruin our reputation. They can fire us from a job. They can bring you up. They can take you down. They can love you. They can hate you. They can value you. They can despise you. They can even take your life from you. People can do a lot to you. This isn't some false bravado that says, well, you can't do anything to me. God's got a hedge of protection around me, and I can't be touched. You hear any TV preacher talk about that stuff, turn it off, tell all your friends never to watch him again. Because it's garbage. We know 
that life can touch us. We know that pain is real. We know that faith in Jesus does not provide insurance or immunity against the reality of life. And anybody who tells you different is not preaching what Jesus preached. Because he told his disciples, you're going to have trouble. You're not immune to it. Anybody who tells you, well, you just need a little more faith and these things won't happen to you. As politely as you can, tell them it's garbage. (laughs) What is it that we should do when these kinds of things happen? When life conspires against us? When we're backed into the corner taking a beating, feeling all alone as if God Himself is against us? I mean, maybe it's just retribution, you think, for something you've done. And you say, well, if I hadn't done this, then these things wouldn't be happening. Or I guess there's some hidden sin I'm not aware of that I committed that God's out to get me for. Or maybe you should pretend like it's not really happening because, well, you know, I'm not of this world, so maybe this is not exactly real. Maybe you should praise God that it's happening. Lord, thank you for so much pain in my life. I'm so grateful that everything has gone wrong, that all of my friends and family hate me, that I've lost my job and I have no money. God, thank you so much. Maybe you should try to find some message from God in it. Lord, I'm going to get up this morning, I'm going to look to the clouds. And there's going to be a sky riding plane, and he's going to write some message just for me. Lord, show me what you're trying to tell me. Maybe you should just assume that God has abandoned you. That he doesn't want anything to do with you. Or maybe you should say, you know what, how do I live as if God is for me, even during the times when I feel like he's not? Even when I feel like I'm backed into a corner, scared to death, and maybe nobody else even knows about it, how do I live as if God is for me? Because the Psalms point to it, life points to it. The reality is life is going to hurt. Looking back on what the psalmists all did and what David did here specifically in Psalm 56, let me give you just one statement this morning. I want to briefly elaborate on it and then we'll close. When you get to the point where you feel as if, when it seems as if, when you might even believe as if God is not for you, that you are there in the corner by yourself and life is just doling it out, how do you live as if God is for you even when you're backed into that corner scared to death? Let me encourage you to begin the steps that it takes to fight your fear with both truth and faith. Fight your fear with truth and with faith. Now hold on before you close everything up. This isn't meant to go on a bumper sticker. It's not meant to be pithy or to have some shallow meaning for you. Because when you look at what David said in verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, verse 9, or verse uh, 10 rather, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, what he's going back to is the truth from God's word. This isn't some name it and claim it kind of thing. This isn't something that, that, you know, you just look in the Scripture and yank one verse out and say, well, I guess that automatically applies to me. This is saying, God, what have you already said? My son this morning was asking me, he said, Dad, what's the sermon about? And he always, he, he, he likes to ask me that uh, before he, he comes or if he's not going to be here. 
And so I was explaining to him, I said, well, here's the deal. I said, David was, you know, was hiding out and, and he's not sure what to do and he's scared and doesn't feel like God is for him and he's wondering what God is up to. And I said, the sermon is about how do you, how do you live as if God is really for you when you feel like he's not? And I said, the first thing that I'm going to try to, to help folks understand, what do you do when you're in that corner? How can you come out swinging? Well, the first thing to fight with is truth. The truth from what God has already said. That's what David went back to. He talked about God's word. He said, in God's word that I praise, it's in that that I trust. For some, the best step that you can take, maybe even the only step you need to take right now, is to immerse yourself in the scripture this week. You say, I don't know where to start. Come and talk to me. We'll figure out what's going on. We'll see where a good place might be for you to start. Part of the problem that we have in America, and as Christians in particular, is that we don't know what God has said. We don't know the promises of God. We don't know the standards of God. We don't know what God has already said. David said, I'm going first back, God, to your word. When you're in the corner and the lies are flying at you, you know what it's like. What will you hang on to? Power of positive thinking? Well, I'm just going to do better. That'll last till about lunch. Maybe. And all that won't get you through your first cup of coffee some days, will it? Go back to God's Word. Immerse yourself in it. Fight your fear first with the truth of God's Word. I'm not going to give you all of the things that I could give you this morning. Here's what God has already said. I want you to be doing that for yourself. Get immersed in God's Word. And secondly, fight it as, as the statement says. Fight your fear first with truth from God's Word and then with faith. Because I told Hank, I said, David looked back on what God had said and then what God had done. And he began to believe what God could do and would do. And that's faith. I can't guarantee you what God will do, but I know what he can do. I know what he has done. And it gives me reason to believe that's what he can and will do in the future because the Bible tells us God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. David was able to look at that and say, Lord, you delivered me from death. And guess what? Later when he became king and he had troubles and he even messed up his own life, he went right back and put his faith right back in God who had already done for him what only God could do and he trusted that God could do it again. So the progression for David here from this fear, this awful experience in life, to faith and absolute victory was founded on reminding himself of the truth of what God has said and reiterating his faith in the Lord. And it's only then that he could say, what can man do to me? They can hurt me. They can even take my life. But ultimately, what can they do to me? Now you fast forward to the New Testament and you read this psalm with the full revelation of God that we get in Jesus Christ. And you see what Jesus did in rising from the dead and you ask yourself, when you go worst case scenario thinking, what's the worst that can happen? What can man truly, what can people truly do to me? The truth is they can't take Jesus away from you. I had a friend who several years ago went through a very difficult time. And I'll never forget what he said in that time. And just to put it into context, he was a football coach in Louisville at my alma mater, and it was in, during his first season. And during practice one day, they had a, a young man who had a heat stroke and died. 15-year-old kid. 
And he was, of course, the coach was suspended pending the investigation. He eventually went on trial uh, for manslaughter, um, was acquitted because they had no no case, but went through a very difficult time when the world conspired against him. He took all the precautions. He did everything he was supposed to do. That's what was born out of the case. But I'll never forget the interview that I saw from the the front steps of his house when the news people showed up and there was a little bit of a rally going for him. He was a member of my home church. And and he said, look, he said, they can take everything they want to take from me. They can take my home. They can take my stuff. They can throw me in jail. And he said this, he said, but they can't take Jesus from me. And I'm going to tell you, that was not some bravado statement. That was where he was. That's all he had left. Because he didn't know what was going to happen. He was fighting his fear and he was scared to death. Fighting his fear with truth and with faith. When you look at the ultimate promise of all this, and one of the things I go back to is always, how do you want to know really that God is for you? There's a scripture that I, that I love to remind myself of, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll read it to you this way. How do you, how do you know truly, is God really for me? Verse 17 of that chapter says, If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Now everything is from God, who reconciled himself through, himself through Christ, uh, excuse me, reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling himself to the world. Now listen to this part. You want to know, is God for you? Here it is. Not counting their trespasses, their sins, against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. And then he says in verse 21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Remind yourself of the truth, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and even when you're backed into a corner, you can live as if God is for you because He is. I'm not here to give you this morning just a pep talk and send you out. I want to challenge us this morning. Because life is going to come at you this week, I guarantee you. What will you do with it? When Apollo Creed... Or Mr. T or Ivan Drago has got you over in the corner. How will you come out swinging? Will you come out with truth and with faith? Or will you just take the beating and figure God's forgotten all about you? He says, I didn't hold their trespasses, their sins against them, and I have made those in Jesus Christ to be just like Jesus. And I've traded places, he says. That's how you know God is for you. And that's the gospel message. It's a simple matter of believing and trusting in that and having faith in Jesus Christ. And in that, that's what you receive is victory over those things. What can man do when Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Don't take it as a pep talk. But when you're in a corner this week, fight that fear, fight that feeling as if God is not with you, as if God is not for you. Fight it with truth and with faith. In Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
song was true, as I said. When you woke up, it's true right now. And He's still on His throne. He still loves you. The offer of new life is still there. And to receive it, it's simply by faith. Faith of absolute trust and surrender. Lord, I give it all to You. As the song we'll sing in a minute says, there's no turning back. Lord, I'm deciding this morning to truly follow You, even if it feels like no one is for me. Lord, I'll fight it with faith and truth. Let that be your prayer this morning. Lord, help us in the next few moments to respond to You however it is You're speaking to us. Lord, it may be something about the sermon. It may be something totally different. But Lord, we pray that You would get a hold of our hearts and work on us this morning. Lord, for some it may be a first-time commitment to Jesus, recognizing the offer of forgiveness for sin, the exchange that You made on the cross, the love that You show in not holding our sin against us. Lord, for others it may be that they're in a corner, helping to come out swinging, Lord, with truth and with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.